Open your Bibles, please. What's that? (laughs) Open your Bibles, please, to John 18. That was a great line, Glenn, about Marianne. Only I just wish I had said it. (laughs) (laughs) Have you seen the TV show, The Biggest Loser? It's uh, one of those things where The Biggest Loser is actually The Biggest Winner. Uh, if you don't know, it's a show about people losing weight, and I, I don't know what their exact requirements are, but the people who come on to the show are extremely overweight. And, uh, and then, I don't know how many weeks it goes on, maybe 20 weeks, um, they're exercising, they're, they're isolated at a place where they're, uh, they're at the ranch, it's called, and there's a gym, and they have trainers, and uh, they have doctors, and and they work, 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 and diet, 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 and, and every week they weigh in, and somebody goes home, and there's all these uh, ins and outs, and there's a little bit of gameplay that goes with it. Um, this is the person who won last year. Um, that's before and after. So that's quite a, quite a successful loss. She lost 112 pounds. Um, uh, amazing weight loss. Several years ago, Sue and I were at the Pastors and Wives Retreat at Cannon Beach, Oregon, and her sister came to visit, and uh, they went off through Cannon Beach, you know, walking around and uh, doing what gals do when they're shopping around, and I went to the ice cream store. <laughs> That's my idea of shopping in Cannon Beach, right? They sell ice cream and candy, you know. And then I, as I walked through town, I saw her and her sister and then another young woman, and they all kind of waved at me like they knew me, and I thought, who is this other woman? And as I got close enough to see her face, it was my niece who had undergone one of these kind of transformations. And, I, and, and she thought it was big. She had a big laugh, you know, ha, ha, Uncle Dave doesn't recognize me, you know. Wow, amazing transformation that people can go through. Um, some of these people change so much that they're hardly recognizable. Uh, wow, are you the same person? I didn't recognize my niece. We're going to come to John chapter 18 today in an episode in the life of the apostles in which uh, we're going to start to see some things the way they were. And then I want to take you to the book of Acts and show you how they became. And they're going to change so much that if you didn't know you might think, are you the same fella that was walking with Jesus before he was crucified? Now, mind you, the events in the book of Acts, some of them start just a couple of months after the crucifixion and the resurrection. But something happened in the in the events of the Passion Week that culminate in the resurrection, something happened that brought radical change to the disciples' life. And so we want to look, first of all, at at a series of things that how the disciples were before the resurrection and how they were after the resurrection. And you could use the word disciple or apostle. They kind of weren't really the apostles until after Jesus was gone. I'm going to use the word disciple because these things apply to disciples today as well. Follow with me in John chapter 18, please. When Jesus had spoken these things, that's the things of the upper room, When he had spoken these things, he went out with his disciple over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden where he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. 
Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. It may say, I am he in your translation. He actually just said, I am. And if you know your Bible, that's a reference to the name of Jehovah in the Old Testament. I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. It just seems to me that Jesus said, I just want you to know what's really going on here. Just before you arrest me, I just want you to know who's on the upside and who's on the downside here. Isn't that amazing? Whom are you seeking? (laughs) Maybe they were a little more respectful the next time. Jesus of Nazareth, verse 8. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these, let the disciples go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him away. The first thing that we observe about the disciples, Peter being an example of them, was this, that before the resurrections, the disciples were hateful. Now, you might say, uh, well, this seems uh, just like self-defense, you know. Hang on here for just a minute and look at this. From Luke chapter 9, one of the times when the disciples were out and about, they sent messengers before Jesus' face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they, the Samaritans did not receive Jesus because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Translate that, the Samaritans and the Jews had racial tensions, and Jesus was a Jew headed to Jerusalem, and he, and he came to this village of the Samaritans who hated the Jews. They didn't hate him, they hated the Jews. And so they did not receive him. They didn't say, sure, come and spend the night here. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? Now there is a great example of some loving fellows. (laughs) You know, this sounds just like the gang warfare of today. Are you dissing or disrespecting me? I'll tell you what for. The disciples said, man, they have insulted you and insulted us. Let's call down fire from heaven. That's the kind of men the disciples were. Simon Peter's there with his sword, and he goes, you're going to arrest Jesus? I'll show you. And he wasn't aiming for the ear now, was he? The disciples became something different after the resurrection. Turn with me to, to the book of Acts. Right after John... The book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. By this time, the Lord has been crucified, risen, and he's left the earth for heaven. The Holy Spirit has come and filled them. Salvation for them is complete. When the day of Pentecost were fully come, 
They were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, that is, in other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, that's religious Jews, from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. That's the miracle of speaking in tongues. The disciples spoke and everybody heard in their own language. Then they were all amazed and they marveled, looking to one another, saying, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontia, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Serene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. They were preaching God's truth. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Here's the key. Others mocked them and said, they're full of new wine. They're drunk. Now, is Peter going to call down fire from heaven? Or is he going to do something different? Look what he does in verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, they all stood up on the platform, raised his voice and said, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. And he went on and preached the first sermon of the church age. And he said, God wants to save you. Now, what's the difference between old Peter and new Peter? Here it is. You know what the most hateful thing is you can do? The most hateful thing you can do is to put someone on the fast track to hell. Isn't that right? We live here for 70 or 80, or maybe if we're really blessed, 100 years But eternity is a lot longer. And if you hate people so much that you say they disrespected us, let's call down fire from heaven and send them straight to hell. That's the most hateful thing you can do. But the disciples weren't hateful anymore. They were loving. They were changed from hateful into loving. Because the most loving thing you can possibly do is tell someone God loves you so much He sent his son, Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Godhead, to take on a human body. And in this case, Peter had to say some stuff that was insulting, but also loving because it gave people a chance to repent, that is to change their mind. And he had to say to this crowd of Jews, remember, it's only been 50 days since the the resurrection. And he had to say, hey, guys, you crucified the Lord of glory. But there's good news. Because he will forgive. He will welcome you into his family. And that's the new Peter. New Peter isn't saying, give me my sword. These guys just insulted me. He's saying, these guys need the Lord. He not only preached the word of God to the very people who crucified Jesus, but think about this. Peter and the other disciples welcomed all of those who believed. And on this day, there was 3,000 people who believed. And they welcomed them into the church. Now think about that. Maybe Peter recognized a guy, said, Hey, you were there at the high priest. I saw you hitting Jesus. 
And now you're sitting here in church? Huh. No, he said, glad to have you, brother. Isn't that the coolest thing? They went from hateful to loving. They went from rejecting people who were disrespectful to receiving them when they repented and believed in Christ. No more hate. Well, the disciples were not only changed from being hateful into loving, they were fearful. You remember when we read from John about Jesus just a minute ago, being arrested with all the disciples around? Listen to how Matthew ends this passage. But all this was done that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which said, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Now, of course, we know Peter personally said, I will go with you wherever you go. And what happened when the the crowd of soldiers and all came? Peter said, better get while the getting is good. And so did all the rest. In fact, it was so so pathetic. Listen how Mark says it. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. That's scared. Because if I grabbed a hold of the back of your shirt, I guarantee you wouldn't run away naked. You'd turn around and smack me one and say, give me my shirt back. This fellow ran away naked. That's pathetic. This is in the Gospel of Mark, and most commentators, even though it's not specified, believe it was probably Mark himself, because none of the other guys had the heart under the inspiration of God to name him. What a pathetic bunch of scaredy cats. And yet... If we'd have been there, would we really have done any different? I don't think so. I don't think so. The most famous case of fear, of course, is Peter himself. Now, Simon Peter stood and warmed himself in the, in the courtyard of the high priest. He's standing there by the fire getting warm. This is after Jesus is arrested. And they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off. Boy, when a guy cuts off your ear, his face is forever burned in, right? I mean, you know who that guy is. And he told his relative, in just a space of a few hours, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a a rooster crowed. And in one of the other accounts, Jesus looks at him. Because Jesus said, Peter, three times you're going to deny me before it's even light tonight. Wow. Peter totally caved. He gave up. And he did what was in his own self-interest. Now turn with me to Acts chapter 5. A couple of months later, how does Peter act when he gets in a tight spot? Look at Acts chapter 5, verse 26. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they sat them before the council. They got arrested basically because the the folks who did not convert to Jesus hated their preaching. And so they stirred things up all the time. Verse 27, And when they had brought them in, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, 
Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? That's Jesus. And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. And you intend to bring this man's blood on us. That's a backhanded compliment, isn't it? So we told you, we strictly commanded you, don't teach. And yet they did so much teaching that everybody in Jerusalem knew it. And they were afraid, look what they were afraid of. We're going to be guilty for putting this man to death unjustly, which of course they did. Drop down now to uh, verse 40. And they agreed with him uh, in some of the discussions. They agreed amongst themselves. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So the disciples departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. That's kind of like parents when they say, now don't watch TV. And then they go out for coffee. Parents go out for coffee. What do the kids do? Right there. Peter stood there and listened to him. Went, okay, okay. You're telling me don't preach about Jesus. Okay. You've beaten me to try to get me to obey. And as soon as he gets outside, what's he do? Hey, everybody, I want to tell you about Jesus. Come on, gather around right here. What's it say? Daily, in the temple, and in every house, they did not cease. That's a little different than Peter saying, I did not know the man. I do not know the man. I tell you with an oath, I do not know the man. Wow, two months later, he's saying, give me a beating. I'm sharing glory with Jesus. I'm not there yet. I don't know about you. But Peter was changed from fearful to courageous. Wow. He became courageous. Several times in the book of Acts, we read about the apostles and some of the other disciples like Stephen standing up to, e to those who oppose, oppose their allegiance to Christ. Stephen, we even have a record of him opposing all the way to death. I mean, he's being stoned and he's saying, I'll see you in a minute, Jesus. Wow, amazing. Well, the disciples were also full of guilt. Listen to this from Luke. Then after about an hour had passed, another one confidently said, Surely this fellow was also with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. And immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. That's guilt. That's, I know I did it, and it's wrong. Wow. Peter had so much changing to do, and I suspect the other disciples had a little bit of guilt as well at not staying awake to pray when Jesus asked them to in the garden, and, and at running away from him and not standing by him in the garden. And they didn't even stand by him at the crucifixion. It was Mary and, and, and John and, and a couple of women standing there, and the rest of them are who knows where. Guilt. What do you do with guilt? 
Well, tell yourself it's okay. Forgive yourself. Anybody ever told you you need to forgive yourself? There's a problem with that. If you were able to forgive yourself, you would have already done it. Listen to a guy who couldn't come to even God's forgiveness. Listen to this. This is Judas talking. Judas who sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. We don't know exactly what he was thinking, uh, but somehow he didn't think Jesus was going to get crucified out of the deal. God knew it was going to happen. But listen to Judas. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, the, the, the people that had given him the 30 pieces of silver, they said, what is that to us? You see to it. So he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and he departed and he went and hanged himself. Folks, guilt will drive you to despair, to depression, and all the way to suicide. That's a very real thing. And I, I, I have bad news and good news for you. The bad news is there's nobody on this planet who can forgive you. But the good news is there is someone not on the planet who wants to forgive you. Just like he wanted to forgive here. Judas essentially listened to his own thoughts and took his own life and never went back to Christ and said, I'm sorry and I did wrong. We'll come to the end of the book of John in a few months and we'll hear Jesus and Peter have an interchange. And Jesus will restore Peter, if you will, at that point. But I just want to show you the results with Peter. I want to show you what it looked like when he became forgiven. And when Simon, this is a different Simon, not Peter. This is just a fellow that they met as they went about sharing Christ. And Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given. And so he offered money to the apostles. And he said, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, that is change your mind, change your thoughts, change your belief because of your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thoughts of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound in iniquity or sin. The Apostle Peter messed up big time. And Christ forgave him. And what does he do? He goes right out into the world and he says, Buddy, you need what I got. You are filled with bitterness and filled with... You are bound, you are, you are held like a person tied up with ropes. Your sin is all around you and you need to be forgiven. The, Peter knew what it meant to be forgiven. He knew the joy of forgiveness. Well, friend, if you're here today and you are bound up with guilt, I want to tell you that Christ can forgive you. I can't. I will if, if there's something between us. But Christ wants to forgive. He wants to change your life as much as he changed these fellows. He wants to replace bitterness with joy. And I'm here to tell you, it's the only place I know of you can get forgiveness. What a marvelous change that happened in the Apostle Peter. But that wasn't all the change. 
There's one more that I would share with you, and we could probably share, you know, a dozen or two of them, but it's this. The disciples were prideful. They were prideful. When Jesus came into Capernaum, this is, you know, back during the life of Christ on earth, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what is it that you were arguing about amongst yourselves on the road as we walked in here? But they kept silent, for on the road they had been arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. They, they had a mistaken idea about Jesus that he was right at that time going to set up a physical political kingdom. And they didn't know that that's going to come later, that the spiritual kingdom was coming first. And so they thought, hey, we're going to be the, we're going to be the president's right-hand men, the top 12 in the, in the kingdom. Who's going to be at the right hand? Who's going to be at the left? And they argued about it. Have you ever argued with somebody about whether you're greater than them? Nobody will raise their hand on that one, I know. (laughs) I'm willing to bet that you've had that argument in your mind. As you've thought about other people maybe who got promoted ahead of you, or you applied for a job and they got it and you didn't, and and so on. Well, you know, da-da-da-da-da. As I thought about... Can you imagine being Jesus, the creator of the universe... The only perfect, sinless, righteous person to ever live. And here's fellows saying, which one of us is great enough to sit on his right hand and his left? That would be like me getting in a room with Bill Gates and trying to impress him with my knowledge of computers. (laughs) He he might get out his wallet and say, that one right there, that's from you. (laughs) That's because I'm smarter than you. By about a thousandfold. These fellows were arguing about who was the greatest in the presence of the greatest. That is the ultimate pride, is the ultimate arrogance to think they can, to think they, I mean, they should have been on their knees going, oh, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can I just be a doorkeeper? But no, they're arguing about that. But what happened after the resurrection? They became humble. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. In other words, it would would be like to to literally fall down and kiss the feet and hug the feet. That's the way they did with a king back then, and that's certainly what they did with Jesus. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I'm just a man. Peter knew what had happened to another fellow in the book of Acts who had a similar thing, not a Christian man. And when he did not give God glory, it says God struck him dead. Boom, just like that. And worms ate his body. And Peter's going, whoa, dude. I remember those days when I used to think I was something. But now I realize God is something. God is something, and he may do some things through me. And if he does, praise him. But he is the one who's great. I am his humble servant. You know, in our human society, part of that doesn't sound too good. Because everywhere around it, it says, believe in yourself, give yourself a break today, do this and this and this and this. And, and, and sometimes it looks to us like if I become humble, I'm going to be sacrificing something. Well, you are. You're going to sacrifice your pride. But you know what you're going to gain? The God of the universe on your side. Boy, I want that. I want that more than my pride. Oh, and Peter got that. He knew what that meant. Well, so the question we need to ask is, how did the resurrection cause these extreme changes in the disciples? Well, the first is this. 
The resurrection declared the validity of Christ. In Matthew 12, we have these famous words that some of the scribes and Pharisees, people who hated Jesus, they came and said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. This is a reference to an Old Testament requirement. And by Old Testament, I mean something that had been in place for hundreds of years before the time of Christ, which was this. When a man comes and says to you, I have a message from God, you say to him, show me a miracle that proves it. And that was the first test of a prophet. And the second test was, does what he tell you match up with the rest of God's word as it's already been revealed? And so these fellows, on the one hand, were doing a righteous thing, but they were doing it because they hated Jesus and they wanted to see him fail. Show us a sign. Show us a miracle that proves who you were. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You want to know why Jonah's in the Old Testament? That crazy story about a guy going in a fish for three days and three nights. He says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He says, you remember that story of Jonah? These guys would have known it well. He said, that's what's going to happen to me. That's what's going to happen to me. And here's how it came out. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they, came, they and certain of the women came to the tomb bringing spices. They were going to embalm his body, uh, to use a paraphrase. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and they went in. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And as it happened, they were greatly perplexed about this. And behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then they were afraid, and they bowed their faces to the earth, and they said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? That's the angels talking. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you? Remember? And he's talking about this passage in Matthew 12 where he said, look, three days and three nights I'll be there and then I'll be back. He says, remember that? Saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day raised again. And they remembered. They went, oh, duh. You ever do that after you took a test? That's what these guys were going through. Hey, he did say that. But boy, I, I didn't think this is what it meant. Here's the deal, folks. Here's the reason why the Christian church, if you're a little less familiar with Christianity, here's the reason Easter is a big deal. The resurrection of Christ proves the validity of Christ. If he did not raise from the dead, he is not who he said he was. Now, some of you are out there saying, well, Dave, you weren't there. You can't prove it. Uh, You're right, I wasn't there. But I could show you a string of fellows the most recent of which is one named Lee Strobel, who was a lawyer and a journalist and a hater of God, who said, I am going to investigate this thing as only an investigative journalist can, and I'm going to put this to bed once and for all. And what happened? He investigated it all right, and he found out it was true. And he became a believer, even a pastor and a writer of Christian books. I'm just here to tell you folks that the empty tomb is the proof that Christ was who he said he was. Now, what does that mean to the change in the disciples? Here's what it means. Jesus said, look, I can forgive sin. If you have guilt, it's because of sin. And there's only one way to get rid of guilt. It's to get rid of sin. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
And if you have guilt in your life, the way to get rid of it is to come to Christ and to believe in him as he presented himself in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and say, I believe. And when you truly give your heart and believe to him, he wipes away your sin. And with it goes the guilt. And in comes a new life. And that's why the resurrection made such a change. Peter was truly forgiven as he had never been in his life. In the Old Testament, if you don't understand it, in the Old Testament time, sins were not forgiven. They were put on hold. The word is atoned for because God looked forward to the time when the real sacrifice would be made. All of those animal sacrifices were accepted by God based on the real one coming in the person of Christ. And so their sins were put on hold. Even Peter face-to-face with Jesus. His sins were put on hold. But when Jesus died, was buried, rose again, that's when God said, forgiven. And all his guilt went away. Well, the resurrection not only proved the validity of Christ, but it did this. It destroyed the power of sin. Listen to these verses from Romans 6. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death... Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection. The baptism spoken of here is not the water baptism like we're going to have next week. Hope you all come back because we're going to have four, five, six folks get baptized with great testimonies that will encourage your heart. But the baptism spoken of there is when a believer, a person comes to faith in Christ and God takes that person and puts them into the body of Christ. Because of your faith in Christ, God puts you into that body and he says, you experience with Christ, you experience the benefit of what he went through. He says, you died with Christ. I was reading that again this week. Um, Our small group was going through the book of Romans and I was reading Romans 6 and it dawned on me that all these years I've said my, my sinful nature died. But you know what? That's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says, I died. And a new me was put in place. When I died, the power of sin was broken. Sin cannot control me. That's what Romans chapter 6 goes on to say. <sighs> when the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was accomplished... The disciples were born again, and they now had power to say, yes, I'm being tempted to do the wrong thing, but by the power of Christ, I will do the right thing. I have no doubt that when Peter stood in the courtyard of the high priest and he watched Jesus being poorly treated and insulted and spit upon, that he was thinking, man, I should do something, I should do something. And then part of him was going, you should run away, you should run away. And eventually he went, I do not know the man, and he ran away. Because he had no strength. Our world is telling us that we have what we need for our life. Just reach down in there, get a hold to it, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You can do it. And I'm here to tell you, you cannot. And neither can I. But God can do it in me. When you come to faith in Christ, he kills you and he brings to life a new you and that new you gets the benefit of resurrection power 
Listen to this from Ephesians. Boy, I love these verses. Paul prayed for the Ephesians, and he said, I want you to know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. How much power does it take to raise somebody from the dead? It takes quite a bit. Uh, there's, you know, there have been a couple of folks on the TV that claim that God has done that through them. I, I don't believe it because I haven't seen it. But the resurrection of Christ, of course, was even different than just bringing somebody back to life who dies again. God, God went, Arise! And Christ rose up. <laughs> His human body was restored. And that power is in us if we believe in Christ. Now, what is the difficulty that you have that cannot be surmounted by that power? And I don't want to minimize your difficulties. I don't want to minimize the challenges of who you are and, and what you struggle with. But God says it's that power that's working in us. That's why this verse is true. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Wow. Another show that I enjoy watching once in a while on TV is Extreme Makeover Home Edition. And if you haven't seen this, uh, it's always very heartwarming. I'm not sure it's always real wise the way it's done. But they come in with these big old uh, backhoe excavator things, and they go walk through somebody. They go walk through somebody's house first, and, and it's always got mold, and the foundation is cracked. I mean, it's terrible, terrible. And these people have a, a, a hard story in their life, and so ABC and Sears and whoever else comes in and says, "We're going to take care of it." When they started the show, I think they were doing some remodeling and adding on, and it didn't take them very long to say, "You know what?" Let's just tear it down, start over. And so they take those things and literally just chew, 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 chew. And uh, in seven days, it's a beautiful new house. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. You know what God does? God doesn't come in and remodel you. He takes you and puts you on the cross and crucifies who you are. And then he gives you a new life. That's why we can be a new creation in Christ. How much power does God have? He has enough power to create things like this. The fruit of the Spirit, the result of the Holy Spirit being in us is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Could you use some of that? Oh, not me, Pastor Dave. I'm doing pretty good. See, that's what God wants to create. That's what new life in Christ is about. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be poor, and I know how to be rich. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Not because I'm great, but because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And even this, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving, just as God in Christ forgave. Is there anything much harder than forgiving people? Is there anything much harder than letting go? 
of the hurt, the hurt genuinely suffered. But God can do it. God can do it. I've been living with uh, weakness uh, because I had surgery in my shoulder uh, seven or eight weeks ago, and I'm not supposed to do certain things, and it comes in really handy when it's time to move stuff around the church. Oh, I'm sorry, I got a shoulder. I can, you know, I can. <laughs> got a little plumbing thing at home that needs fixed, and I go, well, you know, I'm going to have to read. I don't, I don't think I can do that, you know. <sighs> this week, the physical therapist gave me exercises to do that will begin to bring my strength up to normal at some point. And I'm thankful for God's healing and for the strength that will come in my body. And I want to ask you today, have you been living with spiritual weakness? Physical weakness, boy, you know, it's, it's kind, of a, kind of a drag. You know, I'm getting increasingly stronger, but that's one thing. But spiritual weakness, personal weakness, can't get over, can't get around, can't get through, can't get on to where I know God wants me to be. 